Good morning, church. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and to find the book of Judges, chapter 6. We'll be reading there in just a moment. Judges, chapter 6. This Tuesday will mark the 241st anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Some of us will live to see the 250th anniversary. We celebrate that as a nation for a lot of reasons. I hope you love your country. We have a lot of reasons to be thankful for the country that we live in. It was founded not entirely on Judeo-Christian principle, but with incredible influence of God's Word and people who knew the Lord. And because of their influence, you and I enjoy freedoms like the one we have right now to gather and worship without interference from the government. But we also allow in our country others to gather to worship other gods, other faiths, other religions. And if you know your history, you know that Baptists in particular are responsible for that. And you say, well, why in the world would Baptists support the right of a Muslim to worship? Because we believe in the power of the gospel. We believe that the gospel can best be communicated and can have its greatest impact when people come to faith freely on their own without being coerced or forced that the gospel has the power to change a human heart and that the best way for the gospel to be shared and spread is in an atmosphere of freedom. And so we have enjoyed this for some 241 years now and, and yet we are seeing around us deep and profound changes in our culture. A nation is only as great as its people. That's true of a church, that's true as a, of a household. And we are seeing a tremendous shift as our nation becomes increasingly more secular and godless. We're seeing increasing hostility to Christians, not just any kind of Christian, but specifically the kind of Christians represented here, Christians who believe God's Word and believe that certain things that God says are true and timeless about who we are as human beings. We are seeing in our nation increasingly rancor, hatred, hostility, and physical threats if you simply disagree with someone. The possibility of friendly and civil discourse has almost disappeared. We don't see it in our leaders. We don't see it in the media. And dear ones, we don't see it often in the church. I believe the greatest hope for our country is not in Washington, D.C., but is right here in the pews of Wynn, Arkansas. And I see that even, even more clearly as we come to this particular text. The title of this morning's message is Tired of Running on Empty. Tired of Running on Empty. I'm tired of running on empty. I hope that you are too. If you found your place in Judges chapter 6, would you follow along? As I begin in verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown... Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Would you pray with me?
Father, the most important thing that will happen here today will be if even one person hears your voice. And so we welcome you here, truly as the focus of our praise and our thanks. And we want to shift our attention completely on you, Lord. And we want to leave here with a greater sense of wonder and awe at who you are. And less and less of the thinking of this world in our hearts. Holy Spirit, only you can do this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have learned in our past several weeks of studying in the book of Judges that what was written in the Old Testament was written as an example for you and me. That if you think about the stories of the Old Testament, they're just not there as outmoded examples of how not to live with God or walk with God. We've seen over and over again how, how God wants us to read and understand that those historic events are lessons for you and me. In this particular case, the people of Israel had been called to go into the promised land, delivered from Egypt, called to go into the promised land and to completely drive out a nation that had offended God in every imaginable way, killing children, worship that involved extreme sexual perversion. And he had allowed it to go on for years in his mercy. But then he sent his people and he said, this land is yours, but you've got to drive all of them out. And what we saw in chapter 1 is that they were unable to do that. They didn't do it. Not completely. And we saw how tribe by tribe by tribe, they left part of the Canaanite people there. They, they built a fence around them. They enslaved them. They did different things in relationship to them, but they didn't do what God said to do. And so, as they coexisted with something God said you cannot coexist with. And by the way, as, as God's people, there are things I believe we allow into our hearts and our minds that we are not supposed to coexist with. But as they did that, they became infected and one of the great enemies of the human soul began to destroy the nation of Israel. Now we've seen in previous weeks in Ephesians 2 that there are three primary enemies of your soul right now. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we've seen how the devil manipulates the other two enemies for the greatest maximum impact on your life. The world represents that system of values designed to enable you to do life without God. The flesh represents those body of desires that you were born with that wants to do your own thing, wants to leave God out of every decision, out of every equation, wants you to seek to please yourself and not him, and it's the flesh, that body of desire that's there, and it will be there until you die. So the world and the flesh, and then Satan pulling the strings on those in the background. Sometimes directly, sometimes less so. And so here were the people of God, and they, they had a world system, and that's what we want to focus on today. They had a world system, and they had drunk from that cup. And in their day, that world system involved a whole host of deities, other gods, that were associated with different people groups. And as you came and you began to dwell among those people groups, the reason those people lived in that land, the people, those people had been successful living in that land, is because of the gods that they worshipped. That was the mindset. And so if you were going to be a farmer in the land of the Canaanites, you had to fear the gods of the Canaanites. You had to respect them. Because if you offended them, it would mean that your crops would not be successful. And so this spirit of the world, this spirit of idolatry, infected the people of God. And God said that's what would happen. If you don't drive them out, it will infect you. Now, we, we have to stop for a moment and look at ourselves. 
if this is written as a warning, as an admonition to you and me, have we been, been infected with a world system? We may not have statues that we bow down in front of, but there is a whole system of expectation and understanding of what it takes to get ahead, what you have to do to get ahead. And Christians can be infected and affected and influenced by the spirit of this world, looking the other way when something wrong is going on in the workplace, cheating, lying, uh, going through certain channels, going through certain routes, talking a certain way, attending certain events, uh, being a part of the world. If you don't do these things, you're going to look not normal. You're going to look weird. People aren't going to want to associate with you. You're not going to be able to advance or be successful in this world unless you drink from the cup, the spirit of this age. And there once the church in North America has drunk of the spirit of this age. We do not even know how much we have been influenced and are continuing to be influenced by the world system of values. Well, when the people and judges began to do this, God handed them over to the Midianites. Midianites were nomadic people. They were actually descendants of Abraham, but through Ishmael. And the Midianites would come up. They would wait for the Israelite farmers to come they would plant their seed, their crops would grow, and just before harvest time, the Midianites would show up. And they weren't there to help with the harvest. They weren't there to buy the harvest. They were there to steal the entire harvest. They would come and take all the crops. They would allow their animals to forage and feed at will. If you tried to resist them, they drove you up into the hills, drove you out of your homes, took all of your possessions. And as a consequence of that, the people of God became weaker and smaller. And they began to be tired of running on empty. Have you experienced in your life taking two steps forward, three steps back? Where it seems you just can't get ahead no matter what you do? Now, I'm not suggesting to you that every adversity that you experience is a consequence of God's disfavor with your behavior, your unbelief. But listen to me carefully. There's a distinction, and I'm going to try to draw it every week. There's a distinction between the kind of suffering and hardship that comes into our life because of disobedience and the kind that comes into our life because the enemy hates your obedience or you're being attacked or you're being tested in your faith. The Lord delivers the righteous from all his troubles, it says in Psalms. He does that. And so for that to be a pattern of life, on and on and on and on and on and on, You've got to stop and ask some honest questions about, Lord, why is this happening? One of the things we've got to understand from these stories in the book of Judges is that God loves you, and he loves you so much that he is willing to sacrifice your happiness in order to win your heart. Not because he hates you, but because he wants your heart. He wants to bring you to himself. And so no matter what else is happening, know this, God loves you and he is bringing you to himself. He wants you to come to him. So much of the time we let trouble drive us away. It's a hard discovery when we begin to realize that. These people had not even figured it out yet. They were immersed in the world system that they were in. There was God, but there was also the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Canaanites, or all these other gods. They were all mixed together. God, Yahweh, was just one of the mix. He was unique to their people, but it didn't seem he had done anything lately. And so when the world's way isn't working, you have four needs. God might use to bring you closer to himself. But as he's working in this, in this particular story, and Gideon, and by the way, we're going to spend three weeks on Gideon. And Gideon starts well, but there when he doesn't end well. And we need to explore that. There are things that we need to learn from Gideon. But there are things that, that we need when the world system has infected us. If I'm going to be free of that world system, and part of that is a lifelong deliverance, but if I'm going to be free from that and enter this process where God is teaching me his way, showing me himself, there, there are four needs, and God may use any one of these needs to bring you closer to himself. Here's the first one. You need a prophet. You need a prophet. Look at verse 7. And it came to pass... 
when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What a shock. I want deliverance. And God sends me a preacher? People were crying over their pain. I don't like this pain. I don't like this pressure. I don't like what the Midianites are doing to me, to my family, to my land. They're crying over their pain, but not over their problem. They don't even know what their problem is. And so God sends a preacher. These people have no clue. They are spiritually blind. This, this drinking from the cup of the spirit of their age, this necessity of trying to keep all the gods happy if you're going to be successful, that, that whole approach to life, they didn't have a clue that they had a problem there. And so God knows what they need, and what they need most is a word from God. God sends a prophet, someone who will tell the truth. I don't know what you think a pastor's preacher's purpose is. I know sometimes I get the impression that people think a pastor's role is to be like a chaplain in the community. Not that there's anything wrong with chaplains, Jason. He is one. But to be kind of a professional holy man who's there to kind of fill a role and do all the things that Christians should do on our behalf. You know, in Matthew 25, when we stand before Jesus in judgment, one of the things that's there is, I was sick and you visited me. Some of us are going to be surprised when we discover that was not just the pastor's job. The pastors are to be examples to the flock of what a Christian life is supposed to be like, but not to substitute you living that life. But of all the things that pastors do, one of the most important things that a pastor does is spend time alone with God, praying for the people of God, and asking God, Seeking God, Lord, what do you want me to say to your people? And if a preacher is not doing that, he's just a professional holy man. You can download a sermon, four bucks, four bucks, it might be five bucks now for the good ones. But that's not a word from God. What he does on Sunday morning is to be more than just a Bible study. You have Bible study time before you come in here. And we should have that kind of Bible study. We should study it in depth. We should ask questions. We should learn. We should seek to understand it. But I don't expect our teachers to come into the Sunday school class with the sole objective of delivering a word from God. They're there to teach the word of God. It is absolutely vital that you understand that what I'm standing here doing this morning is not here to entertain you. It is here to feed you and to feed you specifically with what God has said to give you. And some of us, if we're going to get out of this world system that we're trapped in, where I've done all the right things, I've done everything I thought I was supposed to do to be a good guy or to be a good lady, and I'm still not getting ahead. If I'm ever going to get out of that, sometimes what needs to happen is that God needs to send a prophet into your life, someone who's going to tell you the truth and point you back to your father in a way that you can understand. 
we have so many, so many books, so many uh, messages out there for people that when they get in trouble, they are so disappointed in God. And I understand that. It's a real phenomenon, and, and we do need to deal with that. But listen, dear one, what if God is disappointed with you and me? What if he's disappointed with me? I need to know about that. I need to, I need to know when God is not pleased with me. I need to be corrected. And that's one of the purposes for what we do here on Sunday morning. Sometimes you just need a prophet. Jesus said in John 8, 32, when you follow him, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the first step of deliverance. It wasn't the Midianites. It was their need for truth, to know the truth about the world system, to know the truth about the fact that they were fearing the gods of the Amorites, and God had said, don't do that. God will not send a deliverer, and he will not send deliverance when what you really need is a prophet. Secondly, first you need a prophet to escape the world system. Secondly, you need a new way to live. You need a new way to live. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Afra, which belonged to Joash, the Abi Ezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our father told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man." In their many respects, Gideon personifies the spiritual journey of the entire nation. And what needed to happen with the nation is being portrayed in the life of Gideon, ultimately, who becomes their deliverer. The enemy is eating away at every advance that they make. Every advance that they make. By the way, this isn't the first time this happens in Scripture. Uh, God often uses the sacrificing of our happiness and material wealth to get our attention. And it's always to get our attention. And, and we see it in, throughout Scripture. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, one, of the minor, one of the minor prophets. When he goes and the people were supposed to rebuild the temple of, of God and Haggai received this powerful word from God and it burns in him, he has to share it. And he says, you people say it's not time to finish the temple. And it's been sitting there for years, unfinished. He said, you people say it's not time. He says, is it time for you to live in your nice houses? In your paneled houses? Is it time for you to have a great place to live? Why don't you finish the house of God? He said, have you noticed what's happening to you? And I'm paraphrasing, Haggai 1. He says, have you not noticed what's happening to you? You put money in your purse and there's like a hole in the bottom. It just goes away. That's the way it was when I had six kids at home. And that wasn't punishment from the Lord. But, but when, when you, you get ahead, he says, you're falling behind. Do you not understand that God is speaking to you through that? That's what he says. That's what's happening here. The enemy's eating away every advance they experience. What's interesting about Gideon is that he is doing what the other generations have done. He is learning to live with the problem. He's learning to live as a defeated member of the, of the people of God. And, and how he is doing this is pretty clever, actually. Instead of threshing the wheat, calling attention to the fact that he's got a little bit of a harvest thing going here and inviting the, a Midianite raiding party at his property, instead of doing that, he goes, he, he secretly cuts some wheat, he goes into the wine press that has 
high walls, and he begins to thresh the wheat there, throwing it up in the air. Now, I don't know what people thought when they were riding by and they saw wheat going up in the air above the wine press and chaff being blown out, but, but apparently it was working for him. And what's, what's remarkable is he's, he's learning to live with this problem, and while he's learning to live with this problem, he is blaming God for his problem. You say you're with us. How can you be with us when this is happening? I tell you what, if you're a Christian and that's the way you're living, that's no way to live. If, you, if, you, if your testimony is, I hear that Jesus saved me, I hear that he delivered me, but I'm just not getting anywhere in life. I'm defeated on every front in my soul, both internally and externally. I just don't see any evidence of the hand of God in my life. I don't see any way forward. And it seems like everything I do, God is pushing back. I want you to know God never intended for you to live that way. Not then, not now. In John chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And so what God intends by sending Jesus, and by the way, most scholars believe the angel of the Lord that appears and speaks to Gideon is one of those early pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. And so what God is doing in sending this angel of the Lord to Gideon and in sending Jesus Christ to you and me is to give you a life. A real life. It is never the Father's heart that you go through life miserable. And that doesn't mean you'll be free of challenges. That doesn't mean you'll be free of storms in your life or difficulties or even suffering or tragedy. But it's not God's intent that you go through life always hanging your head, always defeated. He said, I'm come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Do you believe that? That's his promise. And so there's a different kind of life. And as the angel of the Lord talks to Gideon, we see the very same thing in the New Testament. Listen, there are new aspects to this this, uh, life that God wants you and I to enjoy. First of all, there's a new relationship. This is for Christians. This is for the people of God. There's a new relationship. He says, I am with you. He says, the Lord is with you in verse 12. You're not by yourself, Gideon. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't forsaken you. God is with you. And I know I'm talking to a Christian here this morning who doesn't think that God is with you. But the stepping into a new relationship is to take God at his word. He is with you. You've never been alone. You've never been out of his mind. Not for one moment has he forgotten you. A new relationship. He offers him, tells him a new identity. He gives him a new identity. Verse 12, he calls him a mighty man of valor. What a joke. If I was Gideon, I'd be just shocked. He's hiding. He's fearful. He's trying to protect the wheat. He's trying to to live with the enemy and the oppression and the pressure. But you need to understand that the way that God sees you right now is not the way you see yourself. If you're a Christian here this morning, one of the things that happened to you when you became a Christian is that The moment you trusted Jesus, he took your life, your human spirit, and the Holy Spirit came to dwell inside of you. And in that union, you became part of the body of Christ. The New Testament over and over and over and over again describes you as being in Christ. In Christ. And you have a new identity. God sees you as someone that he loves, someone who is his son or is his daughter, someone who is standing before him holy and blameless, someone who is going to be as clean as a driven snow when you stand before him in the final judgment. You have no fear going into the judgment because of what Jesus has done for you. He's already died for your sins, taken away every basis of judgment. You can have boldness in the judgment, the apostle John says. And so you have a new identity. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You have a new purpose. 
Verse 14, he says, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? He's, he's got a mission. He's got a purpose. His purpose is not to be a farmer treading out or threshing out grain. God has a purpose for him. And he didn't know that God had this purpose for him, that God had other things for him to do. You may have spent much of your life doing the next thing you thought you were supposed to do. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, oh my goodness, I've been making all of my own decisions, just doing what I want to do. I come to church, I, I give, I do the things that I believe God wants me to do, but, but, but I'm beginning to realize God may have a purpose for my life beyond what I am doing right now. He may have a purpose for your life doing what you're doing, but in an entirely different way, with an entirely different outlook. But he has a mission for you. He has a purpose for your life, a plan for your life. Do you know what that is? It's part of the life that he has for you. There's a new power. When uh, the angel tells him, I'm going to send you and you're going to defeat the Midianites, he says, what, me? Who am I? I'm from this small tribe. I'm from this small clan in this tribe. I'm nothing. I'm the youngest kid. I'm, I'm nothing. Nothing. And God says in verse 16, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites. When God is with you, you can do everything God is asking of you. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. That Spirit of God is eternal. That Spirit of God in you is all-knowing. That Spirit of God in you is all-powerful. You can do everything God asks you to do. You have a new power. He never asks you to do it in your own strength. And so if to get out of this world system, sometimes you just need a prophet. Sometimes you need to understand a new way of life. Secondly, or thirdly, you need to know God. You need to know God. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. This is Gideon. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. Can you imagine putting God on hold? And God saying, that's fine. No problem. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour the meat he put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. The food was gone. The broth was gone. The guy, he didn't know who he was talking to. That guy was gone too. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an Afra of the Abiezrites. You need to know God. Gideon decided to have a test, wanted a sign. Is this really you, God? And so he says, Can you just wait a minute? I've got an offering. Can you wait? He goes in, prepares it. I don't know how long it takes to cook lamb. Anybody here know? But, but he cooks this meal, and he brings it out. He puts it on a rock. And this angel of the Lord touches the rock. It consumes the offering in a flame, and the guy disappears. In that moment, something shifted in Gideon's, Gideon's mind. And, and something happens to him that may never have happened to you yet. But he gains a perspective of who God is that changes his life. 
He'd been talking to him like a man. Here's this guy coming up here. The Lord is with you. Yeah, right, yeah. You know, just some guy. He's just talking to him. That's the problem with idolatry is, is you just start treating all the gods like men. And, and he was treating God like he was a man. That's one of the great problems you and I have is we do not understand that he is not a man. He is not like us. I'm just running out of time, but let me just say this. Some of you struggle in your relationship with God because you don't know who you're dealing with as well as you could. And it's very difficult for us sometimes to believe the things that God says because because we're human and we can't imagine doing the things that God says, like loving us even when we have messed up. And the only way you're ever going get, to get past that wall of unbelief is if you begin to focus not on who you are, what you are, what you aren't, but begin to focus on who he is, his love, which is so different than ours. I'm just going to go ahead and share this. I... Um, some of you know, I've talked about it from the pulpit. Uh, much of my believing life, I've struggled with what I call uh, a problem of exceptionalism. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Exceptionalism does this to your heart. Uh, you read a verse like John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I believed I believe that he saved my soul and that he's changing me and that I'm going to heaven when I die. I believe that. But it's the first part of that where exceptionalism creates a problem for me. For God so loved the world. And when I read verses like that, part of that is because, because of some of the things that I endured growing up as a kid that made it, made it difficult for me to believe that someone could love me. And so when it says, for God so loved the world, mentally, I took myself out of the world. That's true. God loves the world. I'm the exception. Have you ever struggled with that? Maybe you still do. I've been praying about that a lot lately because I believe that God doesn't want us to stay there. Preaching this series, I'm getting a lot out of it. I hope you are. And in, and in going through this, I'm just reminded that there are strongholds that set up in our mind, and God wants us to, to deal with those things. And so on, a, on a one night this week, uh, before I went to bed, I just felt impressed. I went back to my study, and I just took some time to read some Scripture and just, just to remind myself who He is and how much He loves me. And, and as I got ready to go to bed, I picked up a little devotional book. It has some of the attributes of God in it. I read a few of those verses. This is good. I thought, I'm going to go to sleep and just let God's Word sink into my mind. And as, and as I was going to sleep, he spoke to me. He speaks to me. I hope he speaks to you, but he spoke to me. And he said this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I know that was in the Bible. It's not one of the verses I read that night. In fact, I had to go look it up. Where is that in the Bible? I've been preaching a long time. I knew it was there. It's Jeremiah 31.3. And after he said that, immediately he began to order my thoughts. And, and here's what I began to realize. Not focusing on me, whether I'm worthy of love or not worthy of his love, but focusing on who he is when he says, I love you. When he says, I love you with an everlasting love, that means his love for you is, has always been has always existed. There was never a time when he did not love you and then started to love you. Or it would not have been everlasting. He loves you and me with an everlasting love. And honestly, something shifted in my heart 
that night. I had a very different kind of week. My heart is different. But not because I think that I'm particularly different. But I've begun to understand just a little bit more about who he is. That's what happened to Gideon. God, who he thought was this big, suddenly became this big. Infinitely bigger than he ever dreamed or imagined. And he said, I have spoken to him face to face. The guy disappears, but God immediately speaks back to him. He says, hey, be at peace. Be at peace. Shalom. Hey, I'm God. When I'm in charge, you have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. You're going to stand before me one day, and you're going to discover none of those things you worried about. You didn't have to worry about them. All those things you were afraid of, you were never in danger. You never had to be afraid. Never had to worry. Gideon's going through this experience. Well, the old system is crumbling, but one more thing remains. He needed a prophet. He needed a new way to live. He needed to know God, really know who God is. One of the reasons we are not where we need to be in our walk with God is we do not know who we're walking with. And we need to take time to know him. But number four, to be free, you need to tear down your idols. You need to tear down your idols. In verses 25 and 26, it says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. Now, Baal, I believe, was, was animated by a demonic spirit. And this demonic spirit who, and there's often a demonic spirit behind, uh, even today, behind idolatry, behind idols. But Baal's mission in this instance was to rob God of all worship and trust from his people. To take that away from God. After every disaster, after every calamity, after every crisis, after every every tragedy that comes into your life or in the life of when or in the life of our nation, I believe that Satan sends out his hordes, his demon armies to come to the people, Christians, non-Christians, and whisper in their ear, why did God do that? How could he allow such a thing to happen? And this spirit of idolatry, the spirit of the world, wants to just suck all of your worship out of your heart and suck all the trust out of your heart. The idols have failed the people of Israel. They are failing us, but they didn't see it, and I fear many times we don't see it either. I was preaching about the Midianites coming in and taking away everything as the people plant crops, and they're ready to harvest them. All their produce is taken away. As I was preparing for the sermon Wednesday afternoon, about 1.30, I was preparing to meet with someone in the office, and I get a phone call, and my wife is locked out of the house. She was out working in the yard when I left. I'd closed the garage door, and I left her outside. Now, ordinarily, that's no problem. We have a little keypad on the garage door, all she had to do was go up, put in the code, garage door opens, presto, changeo, no longer locked out of the house. Except it didn't work. I said, did you put the code in? Famous husband statement. <laughs> she said, yes, Don, will you come let me in the house? So I left to go let her in the house. I go and look at the, the panel. I pop the the cover off the battery case. I look at it, and it's a little corroded on one terminal, so I thought, I'll change the battery. I'll clean that terminal. I pull it off. One terminal breaks. The panel's now worthless. And so I thought, well, that's wonderful. I'm going to have to order a new one. And I uh, don't need to spend that money right now. You ever have those days? I get back to the office, and we have, on Tuesday afternoons, we have a all-staff meeting where all the staff come together. We pray over the requests that you turn in each Sunday morning on those little tear-off cards. We pray over those, and, and uh, we go over our calendars, and we, we do business things. I sit down, and we, we bow our heads to pray, and I take my glasses off, and the left temple snaps off. 
not these glasses. These are two prescriptions old. I'm not seeing you as well today. <laughs> these are my mow the lawn glasses. <laughs> two steps forward, three steps back. And in that moment, the enemy comes and he wants to whisper in your ear, God, I'm serving you. I'm doing the things you call me to do. Why are you doing this to me? That's what the enemy wants you to do. You know what I did? I don't do this all the time. I'm, I'm just being transparent, being honest. I just, I just turned in my heart to the Lord and I said, oh God, I know you love me. You have loved me with an everlasting love. You just told me that. And so I don't know what you want to do with this, but I'm just going to trust you with this. And... Um, and the story is still unfolding. It's not a bad story. It's a good story. I'll have new glasses next week. When the idols are gone, the enemy is easily defeated. You could not leave the idol up in your own house and be Gideon the deliverer. And so he had to go and tear down the Baal idol, the Asherah pole, and he used the wood of those idols to, to create an altar to God, and they burned the remains of that idol on an altar to God. Idols are those substitutes for God that the world system tells us what we trust, what we want to enjoy and want, what we serve, what we fear, and it controls us through all those basic things. And so if you think that you're immersed in the world system and it's affecting you and affecting your relationship to God, and instead of having a grand vision of God, you have a little view of God, you have been infected. You and I are influenced and bombarded all the time by this world system. How close do you want to get to God? You may think your problem is your panel and your garage broke and your glasses broke. But your greatest need is not to get your glasses fixed. Your greatest need is to draw closer and closer to Him. Because He will do whatever it takes, including sacrificing your happiness in order to win your heart. I brought with me some things I just want you to see before we close. I want you to think for a moment about what you'd be willing to share. What you'd be willing to share. So if someone asks you, Can we sh could I share or borrow something from you? Uh, they said, I want to borrow picante sauce. How many of y'all would have any trouble loaning out picante sauce? No problem, huh? I love this stuff. Hot sauce. If someone said, I need a watch, can I borrow your watch? Would you mind loaning your watch? Anybody? Maybe it depends on the watch. Okay. All right. Um, how about a pair of socks? Would you share your socks with someone? Depends, right? Something to think about. Would you share your socks? Uh, would you share your hat? Did you just share a hat like this? Did you share that hat? Maybe it depends on whose head it came from or which hat it is. <laughs> Would you share a comb? Some yeses, some noes. I know some guys, it doesn't matter. Would you share a toothbrush? No, no, spouses, please, no, no. How about a nose hair trimmer? Boy, I got some faces out of that one. We don't share some things, do we? Let me tell you something else we don't share. What if I told you in this envelope was a love letter to my wife? And in this love letter... I shared with her the deepest senses in my heart of how much I love her and care for her. I showed this to her, by the way, this morning. She said, I knew that wouldn't be from you. It's too thin. <laughs> but you know, something like this, this is a sealed envelope, a letter to her where I'm just communicating to her my love and my affection and my heart for her. That's not something... You stand and read from the pulpit. In fact, that's, that's really no one else's business, is it? Because in the context of that relationship, there's like a wall that goes up where it's just her and me and, and there's a love that we share. 
and the things that we communicate in that context, that belongs just to us. That's how the Father feels about your heart. When you give your heart to worldly values, worldly desires, when you fear worldly things, and you let the world dictate your career path, and you let the world dictate your values and what's important to you and what you're pursuing and what you think is going to make you happy. He is a jealous God, dear one. He is a jealous God. The Bible says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what's not in him? The love of the Father is not in him. Do you know Jesus Christ already as your Lord and Savior? Have you begun a relationship with Jesus Christ where by faith you have put your trust in him as the Son of God, trusting his death on the cross to carry away all your sin so that the Father could have a relationship with you? That's how much he loved you. He sent his son to rescue you from the penalty and the power of your own sin. The Bible says that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you will put your trust in Christ this morning, your sins can be washed away. That is not symbolic or figurative language. He carries away your sin. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and uh, the, the pastors and I will be standing down front. And I want to invite you, if you need to trust Christ today, come publicly without shame, put your trust in Christ. We do all kinds of things publicly without shame, don't we? We cheer at ball games, we do all kinds of things. When you trust God and you love him and you want him to save you, do it publicly and I invite you to come. Come out of the balcony, downstairs, come and trust Jesus. If you're a brother or sister today and you just realize, you know, I think I've been more infected by the world than I ever realized. And it's eaten away my heart and it's created distance between me and God. I've been blaming God for some things, and I realize now I've probably been wrong. And I realize that God loves me, and he's drawing me to himself. And when we stand and sing, you may just need to bow your head right there in the pew. I encourage you to do that. Just say, oh, God, I need to be rescued. And I'm crying out not just because of my problems. I'm crying out because of my real problem. I need to know you. I need to know you more fully. And so, Lord... However you do it, doesn't matter to me. But I pray you would come into my life and show me more and more of yourself. Change me. Grow me. I want to be more and more your son or your daughter.